Let us pray. Father, I ask you to be with us now as we think about your word. I ask you to open our hearts to what you would have us to receive. And I ask you to respond as you would have us to respond and to live as you would have us to live. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We are probably all familiar with the way of thinking that says that the only things we can affirm as true, the only things that are genuine knowledge, are things that either are simply by definition true, or things that are empirically verifiable. Things that through our sensory experience we can observe, test, verify. Only when we can do those things can we say with certainty that these things are true. Only here is found real, meaningful knowledge. And thus, real, meaningful knowledge of the world is grounded mostly, or almost entirely, in what is physical. This way of thinking is often referred to by the label of positivism. Positivism waxes and wanes in its popularity over the centuries. It's certainly not new. One of the most famous expressions of positivism comes from the Bible. In the words, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. So said St. Thomas on being told of Jesus' resurrection. A more current expression of positivism that we are familiar with, an expression of a positivistic mindset, may be found in the popular admonition to trust the science. Trust the science. Some who give this admonition do so because the scientific process of empirical verification makes it, in their mind, the purveyor of truth and therefore the place in which we are to put our trust. Positivism has had many opponents over the years, and I think it is in for uh, new and interesting opponents in the years to come with the advent of things like virtual reality. But today we are pre presented with one of the sort of the old stalwarts in opposition to positivism. And that is the concept of faith as we find it in Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That is beautiful and concise. It is not denying the physical, nor that we know things through the senses. It is not calling the physical evil, or that science is wrong and should be ignored. It is simply stating that fundamental reality is not found in the physical. That when we have done observing, testing, and verifying, 
We have not yet got to the bottom of things. And what is left after that is not just accidental. Things that may be found through further testing and verification. What is left after that is what makes all things real. What gives ultimately meaning to all things. We spoke about it a little bit last week. That is where meaning is found. We may, for example, accurately describe music in terms of periodic vibrations in varying wavelengths, in particular order, that strike the ear in that order and trigger response in the brain. That is an accurate... There are better ways of doing that, but we can do it in physical terms. We can talk of music like that and talk accurately of music. But most of us will recognize that when we have observed, we have observed, tested, and verified all the physical aspects of music, we have not yet gotten to music. There is something more. We recognize that love cannot be boiled down to some mixture of chemical and electrical currents flowing through the neurons in our brain. It certainly involves that. That is true. Those things happen, and we can observe those things. But those things are not contained by the physical reactions. Faith tells us that real meaning of music and love, that truth and goodness and beauty are not found in the things we see and hear and observe, but they are found through them. For these, these things themselves testify that they were not made out of things that were visible, but by the word of God. And through these things we were to be drawn to God. The fundamental reality. Being itself. These things are the means by which God the creator shows us what we cannot see. Faith then, to jump to the end of our reading, has led people to desire a better country, a heavenly one. And when I say a heavenly one, I'm not talking here about streets of gold and a place where we will, though this, I mean, the, the, our eternal resting place. That's not necessarily what I'm referring to here. I'm referring here to the very presence and being of God, the reality that undergirds what we can see and interact with in, in the world. The kingdom of God. Faith leads us to desire that world, that country. It leads people to live their lives in confidence that real meaning and object of their desires is found in that heavenly country so that they live happily homeless life here on earth. Hebrews says the, the men and women in this chapter, this hall of faith, as Hebrews 11 is sometimes called, were content to be strangers and exiles here on earth because they desired a better country. They knew there was something more. There was something more real than what they saw and heard. 
and they live their lives in the conviction of that fact. For faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, is not a thing just to be considered, but it is clearly a life to be lived. And it gives us examples of lives lived with that conviction. The conviction that the world they walked through was not the one to be lived for. Or, to be put it in Jesus' words, they lived the conviction that they should seek first the kingdom of God. It's worth taking a little time to look at a couple of these examples of faith. And we'll start with the very first one. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, how is that done by faith? How is that faith? It's not clear exactly why Abel's offering was more acceptable than Cain's. It doesn't come out and tell us why. I, I remember growing up being taught that it was because Abel offered a, a, a lamb, a, a sheep, an animal, and this was the sacrifice God wanted while, while Cain brought produce, while God was after the blood. And that's what he wanted. I don't think that's quite true. Many of the offering God demand of his people are produce when he comes to giving the law. A more compelling reason is found in the fact that Abel is said to have brought the firstborn of the flock and brought the fat portion. It specifically says that of Abel. He brought the firstborn and the fat portion. While Cain is simply said to have brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. It says that Abel gave the first and the very best to God. And it rather pointedly does not say that about Cain. He simply gave what was there. Abel did not look around and find the leftovers, the things that he could easily afford to do without, and give those to God. It seems possibly that that is what Cain did. I'll take what I need first, what's good for me, and then if I have anything left over, that will go to God. Where is the emphasis there? Cain's focus is in what he needs now in this physical world. That's what takes primacy. Abel looked and said, what is more important? Not this world, not these needs, but the kingdom of God. I'll give first to that, and I'll take the leftovers here. Do we do that? Do we do that with our money and possessions? Do we give the first fruits of our labor to God? Do we tithe? Set aside that portion of our income that is offered as an act of worship, not out of an act of God's need, but as an act of worship to God, as a recognition that His kingdom has primacy, and that I am willing to give more as He leads, and all of what I have is His, comes from Him, and is given to Him. Or do we bless God by giving what we can reasonably figure to do without. After I have taken care of my needs, if there's anything left over, 
I'll give a portion of that. Not just our possessions, but what about our time and energies? Do we make sure to give God some of the best of our time and our efforts? Both in prayer, in worship, in service? Or do we, at the end of the day, if we have some time left over for God, He can have that. But Father TJ, let's, let's be reasonable. You, you don't understand. I'm not rich. I have many responsibilities, demands on my time and my energies. I have family. I have work. And all the other things that life throws at me. Got to meet those things. I understand. I have those things as well. And I know, I know the difficulty of prioritizing the kingdom of God with what I have and what I do. But I also understand that what we do with our time and our possessions is a very good indicator of what we really prioritize. What we think of as being real, as being fundamental reality. It can tell us which country we deem more important and better. Which kingdom has more primacy, is more real, the earthly or the heavenly? If we recognize God's kingdom is coming first, we will give Him first what we have of our time, of our possessions. Abel considered himself a stranger and an exile here on earth and gave what he valued to a heavenly country. And this was living by faith. Abraham is considered the father of the faithful. Hebrews 11 gives most time to him. And he is often considered the greatest example of faith. And there are so many things that can be said of Abraham and his faith. But I want to point out one thing that builds upon what we were just talked about with Abel. Abraham was willing to take earthly risks for the sake of heaven. Now, we have a lot of the history of Abraham's life and we see his growth in faith and we see that he was not always firm in it, that he had his struggles. But Hebrews 11 tells us that in the end he was more concerned with the reality that undergirds this world that we see and touch, then he was concerned with what happened to him in this world. Abraham left an established civilization to go wander about in a strange land that he was promised, but that he never received. To live his life as an exile... In a land that God says, this is yours, but you don't have it. He saw, it says he saw the promise. But the promise wasn't just Canaan. And it wasn't the land that he was really after, Hebrews tells us. It was God. 
The promise wasn't just about a physical land. It was about God bringing about His kingdom through a very long process of building a nation and bringing His Son, Christ, into the world. Just as Abraham waited so long for his son, the long process of God establishing his family. And Abraham would risk his earthly safety and comfort for whatever little bit of that promise he understood and saw. And would say, that's more important. It's common for us in our last words to someone before they leave the house, maybe they're going on a trip, a loved one, a friend, they're leaving. It's very common for us to wave at them and say, be safe, be careful out there. And that's, that's a good and fine thing. It is, it is good to wish for the safety and health of our friends and loved ones. I do think that we do that here, and not all cultures do that. It does reflect the fact that we are overly obsessed with safety, either being, being breathlessly anxious over it or intentionally flouting it at every turn. We are. We should just know that about ourselves. But I don't think it's wrong to wish safety and health on people we love. However, as I was thinking about this recently, it struck me how little of that sentiment we get in the Bible. In God's words to us, He never says, be safe out there. Be careful. And it's not just because He's God and He knows what's going to happen. Rather, His sentiment that He gives us is, you set your eyes on me. You set your eyes on my kingdom. You concern yourself with doing what I've told you to do. And you don't worry about your safety. You leave that to me. When it comes to safety, you leave that to me. And let me tell you up front that I'm not going to promise to keep you physically safe. I will promise to do what's best for you. But I'm not going to keep you all out of all danger. And I'm not going to keep you out of all harm. In fact, sometimes I'll tell you to risk your safety. And I expect you to do it. You leave it to me. Our gospel reading today, all about not being anxious. And it doesn't say, don't be anxious about the little things. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's not what it says. Don't be anxious about whether or not you're going to get into that school and it's going to set you up for life. Or your kid's going to get into that school and set them up for life. Don't be anxious even about the the bigger things, the, the economy, the stock market, looming recession. What does it say? Don't be anxious about life. Don't be anxious about life. Don't be anxious about whether you're going to have food or clothing. The big things, right? Don't worry about that. That's not to be your concern.
He says, your concern is to be the kingdom of God. Instead of being concerned about those things, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What things? The things you're seeking. The things you really are seeking. Me. Fundamental reality. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't be anxious about your things, your possessions. Don't be anxious about my health, right? About health. Well, a little earlier in, the, in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. But after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. We get anxious about the economy and our funds. We get anxious about our health. And I'm not saying it's wrong not to consider your health. God says don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of death. It is an unhealthy thing to be obsessed with health. And it's something we sometimes do. Don't be afraid. You leave that to me, God says. You go do what you're supposed to do. But it's not my safety, you say. It's not my safety I'm considering. It's the safety of those around me. I don't want to put them at risk. I understand that. And that smacks of nobility. And sometimes it is noble. But too often it is used as an excuse to get out of doing things that should be done. Yes, God tells us to love one another. God tells us to bear one another's burdens. Yes, God tells us that we should put each other's needs before our own. But he does not tell us to play God to each other. He does not tell us it is our place to control the lives and the safety of those around us. which we are often want to do because we want to control. Fear often comes from a need to control the world, both ours and those of those, the world of those we love. And just as you are in faith to pursue God and leave our safety to Him, my safety to Him, I am to pursue God and leave the safety of those around me to Him as well, to commit that to Him and then do what I am supposed to do. The command not to fear the one who can kill the body, is it limited to talking about my body only, but to those, of our, uh, those around me as well. We do take risks, risks that are risks to ourselves and to others in a life of faith. I'll tell this story because Phil and Mimi aren't here and might embarrass them, them. Um, but it's, it's, it's a story I think that illustrates. I'm going to give two stories I think that illustrates it. Uh, many of you know Phil used to be the rector of St. John's in uh, Pennsylvania 
And there was a time when the Episcopal Church was kicking them out of the church. They were taking a stand against error in the Episcopal Church. And because they were taking this stand, they, they, were being, they were having to leave the Episcopal Church. And the church was taking the church building and the parsonage, the, the rectory where Phil lived. And there was a time when Phil went to Mimi and said, we're doing the right thing. Our kids... The kids have all, this has been their home their, for their whole life. They're going to lose their home. And I'm going to be in a position where I don't know what work's going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to provide. Maybe, I don't know how things are going to turn out. Can we do this? We're putting the kids at risk. Their health, their emotional health. And Mimi's response to Phil was, what your kids need most is a father who will do what is right regardless of the consequences. That's what they need. Put them at risk. It has almost been 18 years now to the day when my father resigned the pastor of the church he'd been at for 12 years, for my entire life, because he felt that God wanted him to go to Russia as a missionary. Big step. Leaving safety. It was a successful, in, in all the metrics of the world, it was a successful church. He was doing well there. And he thought God wanted him to go to Russia as a missionary. He resigned his church and was headed to the mission field. And in our tradition, there was no guarantee that he was going to get any money. It was just going to church, to church, to church, and asking them to support him. And if people would support him, then he would have an income. If they didn't support him, he wouldn't. And the very first day of this process of going to the mission field and trying to raise support, my family piled in our van and headed off to a church. And on the way back that Sunday, my three-year-old brother was killed. And all the questions came. Did we do the right thing? Should we have left the safety? If we had never resigned, if we weren't going to Russia, it wouldn't have happened. And my mama said multiple times that what helped her through that experience and to continue to go as a missionary to Russia was the fact that in that morning, on the way as we pulled out the driveway in the van, my dad prayed and said, God, this is your, this endeavor is yours. This day is yours. I am committing my family, myself, and this whole process to you. It's in your hands. And we'll take whatever comes from you. Well, we might see that as God's failure. We committed the family to God and you killed one of our children. You allowed it to happen. My mom saw it as a recognition of the fact that there is a greater thing. My mom saw it through the eyes of faith and realized that this life is not ultimate reality. That God is. We may not understand why. When we risk ourselves, He rewards us with not taking care of us. But there is something greater even in the life of her children, even the life, a life that is, she valued far more than her own. 
she was assured that God was in control. And she left that to him. If we are to live a life of faith, we must come to grips with the fact that that life, with its pursuit of God, his worship, its recognition of the primacy of his kingdom, will demand actions that for all the world seem risky, dangerous. For all this world seem risky and dangerous. But from the eyes of God, they're not. Great, you say. I come to church this morning and hear the preacher say that maybe tomorrow I should drive blindfolded to church. Just do risky things, right? Maybe I should scold my children for looking both ways before they cross the street. Teach them to ignore the poison labels on bottles. Take risks. No, that is not what you heard me say today. Nor am I condoning the man who abandons his family to go do ministry in the name of the kingdom. That's foolishness and disobedience, neither of which is pleasing to God. Then how, you ask, how am I to determine what risk behavior is good and what is bad? Wisdom. Get wisdom. In Scripture, biblically speaking, there is no workaround the need for wisdom. You can't get around it. There is no list of things that God can give that says, do this, don't do this, that gets us around the need to have wisdom as we walk through this world. Wisdom as being the ability to see the world as God sees it. To understand, in this case, we've been talking today, understand what is real and what is important and what is not. And God says, get wisdom. Give up many other things to get it. It's a treasure. You pursue wisdom. And if you don't have it, find someone who does and get close to them. Don't be a companion to fools. The getting of wisdom demands, interestingly enough, demands faith. Wisdom is a gift from God. We heard in our reading today that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near must believe that he exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. James will say that we should rejoice when encountering trials because the trying of our faith will ultimately to God, lead to God's perfecting of us, which is his goal, to perfect us. He, James immediately follows that by saying, if any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of me, who gives liberally without abrading. If any of you lack wisdom, who's the you? Who is the you here that lack wisdom? Any of you who by faith are being worked on leading to perfection. Going through those trials, going through those difficult times in faith, in recognition of who God is and the reality of God. Any of you in that situation, pursuing God, if you lack wisdom, let it ask. That you is not anybody who's living however you want and just want God's blessing on your disobedience or whatever else. Ask God and God's going to reward you with wisdom. Get wisdom. 
And we do it by pursuing God in faith, beginning by recognizing that His will, His kingdom is primary. And best we can, and yes, it is the best we can because it will not be perfect. Best we can where we are right now. Begin to say, all right, I'm going to do that. Maybe falteringly like Abraham did. First acts of faith by Abraham as he went was to find a famine and go to Egypt where he lies about his wife. Why? Because he's scared. He's afraid. He may be faltering like Abraham, but with the goal of reaching that point of faith that Abraham reaches. It culminates in him taking Isaac in faith that God will give him back in the binding of Isaac. Faith. It's not just a nice sentiment to put on an inspirational quote that we hang on the wall. It is a conviction that reality is more than what we can see. And a conviction so strong that we live our lives for that reality. And this is not just for the high and mighty saint. God expects it with all his people. And for those who do, is given one of the most amazing lines of all of Scripture. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He is prepared for them a city. What an amazing thought. God is not ashamed to be called my God. As I, best I can, live a life of recognition of Him Pursue Him. I encourage us to spend time with God. Asking for the gift of of faith. Encouragement and strength in it. I cannot tell you how many times I have prayed with this thought in mind. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have some flickering flame of faith, but it is so feeble. Help my unbelief. Help my faithlessness. Build it up by your grace. I don't want you to be ashamed to be called my God. I pray for us that we have some glimpse, like Abraham, of the promise of the better country. And we become happily homeless here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.